If you have your Bibles today, would you open them to Psalm 8? The 8th Psalm. Last week we began our study in the book of Psalms with Psalm 1. We're going to work our way through. We are by no means going to be exhaustive. We're not going to hit every psalm. We're going to just kind of skip a rock through the book of Psalms. And this week we're landing on Psalm 8. Psalm number 8. Here in this Psalm of David, the Holy Spirit led him to write, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the adventure. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, you have crowned him with glory and honor, you have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands, you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas." O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Today we're going to look at this Psalm of David. And as we begin to study, I want you to take note of the title introduction. Maybe your Bible includes the introduction to this Psalm where it says, The glory of the Lord in creation to the chief musician on the instrument of Gath, a Psalm of David. Here we have a psalm written by David that focuses on the excellence of God. And we find in the introduction that this is a psalm intended to be used with the instrument of Gath. Now, in general, that phrase, that instrument, is considered to be a a particular instrument that was used for joyful praise. It was a musical instrument that was inclined to be used in times where there was a joyfulness. And so David says, I've written a psalm focusing on the excellence of God for the purpose of producing joyful praise. In the introduction, we have the intent of the psalm. What is written herein is to produce a joyful praise among God's people. As we study Psalm 8, the intent of the psalm is to put each of us in a place where we recognize the excellence of our God, and it leads us to a place of worship. And so as we pull the psalm apart this morning and look at the particular elements in the psalm, that's the intent behind each element, that we might be introduced and drawn into, inclined towards a joyful praise, a heart of worship to God. This psalm is about the Lord and his excellence. And so let's just jump right into it. Because the Lord is excellent. That's the very first thing David points out. It's it's explicit. It's all over this. You cannot deny the reality that the scriptures here want us to understand and recognize that the Lord is excellent. Our God is exalted in excellence throughout all the earth. That's how the psalm starts. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. 
The excellence of God is upon the entire earth. But what is the excellence of God? Well, there in verse 1, that word excellent comes from the Hebrew word adir, and it means to be great and majestic, to be the great one, the majestic one. When the psalmist declares the excellence of God, he's declaring God as the great majestic one, the only one who is great and majestic. That word excellence speaks to the majesty of God. It says that the majesty of God is mightier than all, that God in his majesty is more noble than all, that God in his majesty is above all, he exceeds all, he is more worthy than all. That is the excellence of God. His majesty, expansive, superseding all that is or ever will be. The supreme, un exhaustible majesty of God. As the psalmist declares God's excellence, he's declaring the majesty of God that is above any person, place, or thing that we could ever imagine. This psalm is about the majesty of God, the supreme majesty, the reality that only he is worthy of any praise or worship. He's above all and and supersedes all in his majesty and in his excellence. That's what that phrase means when it speaks of his excellent name. So we have a psalm written for the purpose of leading us to joyful praise, and it is all based on the excellence of God. Not how we feel, not who we are, not what the world says or what happens in the world, but simply because our God is excellent. His majesty is supreme above all. So God's children have an inclination to worship simply because their God is majestic, regardless of what happens in the world. But let's unfold this idea of the excellence of the Lord and his majesty. Because you see, we find here in this psalm that God's excellence in all the earth, well, is dependent on himself. God's excellence is in all the earth as it depends on himself. God's majesty depends on God, not on who we are or what we say. You see, God is self-existing, so his majesty, his glory, his excellence is self-existing. He is the self-existing one. That's how David describes him. The address here, O Lord, our Lord. You'll notice in your Bibles, most likely the first word there, O Lord, it's Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, comma, our Lord, lowercase, capital L, lowercase, O-R-D. Those two distinct names for God that David begins the psalm with. He begins, O Lord, O Yahweh, the word for Jehovah, the existing one, the one that is sure in his self-existence, dependent on no other force there is. God exists because he is God. He's self-existing. He's Yahweh. This name reveals his self-existing eternal being that is dependent on nothing else. God exists because he is God. He's self-existing. So his majesty is self-existing simply because he is God. 
That second word, Lord, used there, O Lord, our Lord, is a different word. If you look it up, it translates Adonai, the Lord of Lords, the master of creation, the Lord that is over all the earth, the supernatural master of all. So David says, here's our excellent God. He's self-existing, supernatural master of all. So why is he excellent? Why is he majestic? Simply because he is. That's why. The majesty of God is a reality because God is the self-existing master of all that there is. His excellence is simply due to his own nature and existence. His excellence doesn't depend on any defining characteristic that we assign to God. His excellence, his majesty, doesn't depend on anything in the created order. His excellence simply depends on who he is as God, being self-existent. The psalmist in Psalm 93 describes this. He says, the Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed. He has girded himself with this strength. Who has clothed God with majesty? The Bible says God has covered himself with majesty. What you and I can assign to God means very little, quite honestly, because God clothes himself with excellence and majesty. Our God is excellent simply because he is God. The majesty of God is reality regardless of what you or I think or any else in this world has to say. Regardless of how those on the earth may respond to God, God is still majestic and excellent. He is self-existing. He is master over all creation. And that fact remains regardless of how his creation may or may not acknowledge him. There are those who acknowledge God and recognize his majesty. There are those who fail to recognize God, who care not about his majesty, but the reality is his excellence remains the same in both instances. He has supreme majesty simply because he is self-existent. And if God is excellent in this way, if his majesty is supreme simply because who he is, What the psalmist says then is that that excellence, that majesty, the excellence of God impacts our lives. You see, God's excellence impacts our lives because God is not stoic and distant, but God is active and involved with us personally. And so his excellence, his majesty impacts our lives, our living It impacts our living initially because it's evident to us. The majesty of the Lord is evident. We can recognize it. We can understand it. We can ascertain it. Paul described this to the Romans. He said, what may be made known of God is manifest. God has already shown it to you. He said, God has shown it. He went on to say, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. You see, what we see there, Paul says, God has already revealed his majesty to us. 
His excellence, he's already made a way for us to understand it. He said, in fact, the invisible attributes of God, he has made known to us so that we can even understand his eternal power and his Godhead, his excellence and majesty. God has revealed his majesty to his creation. And there's no denying it. The majesty of God is evident through all the created world. He's done that on purpose that we might understand his power, his Godhead, who he is. He has made known to us these attributes. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 12 of his book says this, Praise the Lord. Call upon his name, declare his deeds among the peoples, make mention of his name that it is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Not only has God allowed his invisible attributes to be recognizable and understandable, he has been at work in the world to reveal the excellence of his character, his majesty. God has been at work to make sure we can recognize his majesty. He's let it be known. And as we recognize his majesty, it impacts our lives. As his deeds and his character give evidence to his excellence, it affects us. In fact, it should do exactly what the psalm was intended to do. It should elicit worship. The majesty of God in our lives, as we understand it, should elicit worship from us. We should recognize the excellence of God and it should do something in our lives. In chapter 2 of Isaiah, he says, those who recognize the majesty of God fall in terror before him. That is a reverent fear. It's a reverent heart of worship. When I come to understand the excellence and the majesty of God, it, it creates within me a heart of reverence for God. And as I respond, as I seek, as I live out, as I approach God with that reverence for his majesty, it it inclines me, it leads me to a heart of praise. The psalmist goes on to say, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His glory is above the heaven and the earth. What's the result of recognizing the exalted position of God? We approach him in praise. We gather together and we sing songs of worship because we recognize the majesty of our Lord and we praise Him. The excellence of our God should cause us to approach Him with a sincerity of heart, with a seriousness of mind. We call that reverence. When I take God seriously and I approach Him with sincerity, recognizing how majestic He is, You see, we have a habit of making God commonplace. We do so many worship services. We come to so many Bible studies. We sit through so many Sunday school classes. We learn the ins and outs of the scriptures. We talk about God here and there and here and there. And we do it so much that sometimes I think we make God commonplace. We forget just how majestic he really is. That his excellence is above the heavens. That his his majesty means he is above all, supersedes all. That he should be approached with an attitude of reverent fear. 
as we esteem him worthy of the majesty he possesses in and of himself as being self-existent. When we have that reverent attitude recognizing his majesty, it changes how we live our lives. Because we live our lives before him and for him with a heart of worship toward him because we know of his majesty. It impacts us. It impacts us. As we come to understand the majesty of God, it changes how we interact with God, approach God, and really how we live our lives. In fact, it should revert us back to younger days when some of us were just naturally inclined to accept the majesty of God with a childlike faith to say, yeah, God's the greatest there is. I believe that. In fact, note what David says here in verse 2, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants. Isn't it something how children seem to have a natural inclination to recognize God for who he is and just accept that? If you've ever tried to train your kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, or if you've worked with children in church settings and so forth. You know what I'm talking about. There's this natural inclination within them just to accept. Yeah, God's awesome. I believe God did all this. I believe God's who the Bible says he is. And they believe it. And they tend to believe it until such inclination is trained out of them. And that's what happens in this world, by the way. We like to let the world train the natural inclination to accept God out of our children. That's a different topic for a different time, but if you're a parent, please guard your children's faith because everything in this world and every institutionalized part of our culture works to train out that natural inclination towards God and train them towards worldly ideologies and humanistic philosophies. See, the majesty of the Lord is there and it should elicit worship. But here's the reality. The majesty of the Lord can be willfully ignored. God is excellent in who he is, and that doesn't change. He's revealed his excellence to humanity. We can recognize it and be drawn to worship, or we can just willfully ignore the majesty of God. And there are many who do. There are many who willfully ignore the excellence of God. through God's creation, through God's action, through God's character, through everything that's in play. His excellence is on display, yet there are still those who willfully ignore God's excellence and his majesty. They willfully ignore the display of God's majesty in creation. They willfully ignore the mighty hand of God at work in the world. They willfully ignore the character of God and who he is. They don't want to accept the majesty of God, so they willfully ignore it. There are those in the world who ignore the excellence of the Lord and they just won't accept it. You can tout it to them. You can expose it to them. You can show them in the truth of scriptures. You can use science and reveal it. You can look through the annals of history and reveal God at work. You can do all kinds of things, yet there are some who just willfully ignore the majesty of God. I 
Isaiah ministered among people like that. He said, let grace be shown to the wicked, yet he will not learn righteousness. Do it in the land of uprightness. He will still deal unjustly. He will not behold the majesty of the Lord. He said, look, there are those you can expose to the truth. You can show them the evidence and they just will not accept the majesty of the Lord. They willfully ignore the truth. They deliberately deny the truth. They reject the truth of God. I think they reject the truth of God. I I think they reject his majesty. Because if they ever admit there is this excellent, majestic God who's above all, then they have to live up to a majestic standard they cannot meet. And if they cannot meet that standard, then there's no hope in themselves. And if there's no hope in themselves, what hope do they have in life? So it's better just to deny the majesty of God, to deny the excellence of God, to deny the truth of God, and say, I'll figure it out on my own. I'll make my own truth. I'll live by my own truth. I'll set my own truth. I'll make truth relative. Because the minute I acknowledge the majestic God, I acknowledge the truth of his scripture. And if I acknowledge the truth of his scripture, I have to acknowledge I'm a sinful person, fallen out of relationship with God, and I have no hope in myself. I must go to Jesus, and I won't go to Jesus, so I'll just deny the majesty of God. There's a world full of people doing that. And the reality is this, my friend, you can reject the truth of God's majesty You can think you're just living life on your own terms, but you're not because a day of reckoning will come. The majesty of God will find you. In fact, the majesty of the Lord will force every person to bow before him. In his excellence, no one will stand. The Bible teaches us that no one can stand against the excellence of God, against his great majesty. In Psalm 15 Moses speaks and he says, in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You have sent forth your wrath. You have consumed them like stubble. In the greatness of God's excellence, his wrath is poured out on those who reject him. Those are the words of Moses in what's called the Song of Moses in the book of Exodus. And you read that and it bears such striking similarity to how the Bible describes Jesus in the final days as he sits on his throne. And you see that those who oppose Christ are consumed. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning verse 24 says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign till he puts all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy he will destroy is death. Jesus destroys those who stand against him as the wrath of God is poured out upon them. What Moses said happens in the excellence of God's power happens at the final judgment. See, those who reject the majesty of God and his Christ will be put under their feet. They'll bow. Because no one can stand in the light of the majesty of God. Those who willfully reject the majesty of God will bow before his Christ. So what it amounts to is this. One may choose to respond to the majesty of God now by submitting to the lordship of Christ, or one may choose to reject the lordship of Christ and his majesty and bow before him later. But either way, you bow. The former bows and is entered into eternal glory. 
The latter bows and is thrown away into eternal torment. But both bow because no one can stand in the majesty of God. No one can raise their head up to the excellence of God. You either bow in submission now or you bow in submission then. But the outcomes are totally different. But everyone bows because no one can stand up to the excellence of God. That's the reality of this. David lays out that the Lord is excellent. He speaks to that excellence and what it means. But then he goes on in his psalm to elucidate evidences of the excellence of the Lord. Because this is a psalm inclined for joyful worship. So he speaks about the Lord's excellence, how the Lord is excellent in and of his own self-existence, and then he moves on. He moves on to the Lord's creation declaring his excellence. You see, that's what happens. The Lord's creation declares his excellence. God is excellent in and of himself, but he's made that excellence known through creation. His majesty is seen in creation. He's let it be known in creation. Here, David is going to focus on just two elements of creation. To the exclusion of all other parts, he's going to focus on just two aspects of creation that declare the excellence, the majesty of God. He begins with God's glory and how his glory is revealed in the heavens. God's glory is revealed in the heavens. In fact, there in verse 1, he says that God has set his glory above the heavens. God has set his glory. A deliberate act, he has set his glory. That phrase in Hebrew means to carry on a long-lasting existence, something of considerable duration. What's literally being said is this, as long as the universe exists, it exists to declare the majesty of God. As long as the heavenly bodies are in place, they are there to declare the excellence of the Lord. They function to declare God's majesty. God has bestowed his majesty upon these heavenly bodies so that they may pay tribute back to him. If you've ever studied the universe, if you've ever studied astronomy, it's remarkable. I'd encourage you just to do a proliferary look into it if you never have. You start looking, just take a cursory look into astronomy. Now, you're going to read a lot of atheistic people's input on that, but just look at the images. Just come to read how things are put together and held together, and you cannot deny the majesty of God. In fact, we don't have time to really go into the depths of it this morning, but if you're interested in that, just look up Louis Giglio and his talks on the universe. Louis Giglio, universe, just Google that. You'll see what I'm talking about. He has invested expansive amounts of time researching the universe and showing how it displays the majesty of God. It's just remarkable. When we're talking about the universe and keeping it to what David said here, we see that the great expanse that we know as the universe, it took so little effort for God to create. You notice how he says, look at verse 3. 
When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers. What kind of effort did it take for God to build the universe and all the galaxies and so forth? The work of his fingers. No arduous, back-breaking, manual labor. Simply his fingers placing stars in place. As I might pick up a marble, God taking planets and just sticking them where they needed to be. How majestic is God? With just his fingers, he made the universe. How excellent and above all is our God? He is the one that took the moon and the stars and all the heavenly bodies and put them in place. And the Bible says, calls each one of them by name. That's how majestic he is. His creation declares it. Every time you gaze into that night sky, you should be aware of the Lord's majesty. It's all around. The problem is, too many of us have been brainwashed into ignoring the majesty seen in creation. Y'all already know, most of you do anyway, I have a background in biology, I love biology, the sciences, it's what I studied forever. And you take great scientific minds of old, who established scientific principle and law, discovered things that we base our understanding on, and I was never taught in school where they came from, where their focus was, why they studied the way they studied. For example, Isaac Newton, you've probably heard of him. He discovered some important things like the law of gravity. He proposed laws of thermodynamics. The work of Isaac Newton propelled scientific knowledge immensely. But did you know that he came from a perspective of doing his work because he was discovering the majesty of God? He did what he did because he recognized the excellence of God? Isaac Newton studied science with a conviction. Here's his own words. That God made the universe with a mathematical structure and that he gifted human beings to understand that structure. In other words... Newton said, I believe that God is so majestic that he created all this in an orderly fashion, and then it is God who gave human beings the mental capacity to unfold that mathematical structure and put things in order, understand how God arranged it. He went on to say, the very orderliness, orderliness of design of this universe speaks of God's awesome majesty and his wisdom. How many times have you read that in your public school science book? But the reality is, great scientific minds of old unfolded the mysteries of the universe, looking at the majesty of God and recognizing this is God's excellence. Look what he has done. God's heavenly creation reveals his excellence. 
David goes on to speak on a second aspect of creation that reveals the majesty of God. He says God's glory is revealed in the creation of humanity. He speaks of the heavens first, and then he speaks of the creation of mankind. The reality that God's glory is revealed through the creation of humanity. In fact, verse 5 says, you have made him. God made man. I'm not going to go into all the theistic evolution and all that kind of stuff this morning. We can discuss that after service if you want to. It's sufficient to say this, God made man. And I believe he made him out of dust and breathed life into him. I think that's what the scriptures teach. And God created human beings with a complexity that pays homage to his majesty. The complexity of your body and the systems that work within your body reflect and point to the excellence of God. The complexity of your existence and the trichotomy of your body, spirit, and soul point to the majesty of God. Only God could do that. When you go back to Genesis and you study the creative order, you see an ascending approach throughout creation where man is the pinnacle of creation, giving homage to the majesty of God. When you read Genesis, you're going to see creation happen this way. God said, let there be. Let the sea bring forth. Let the earth bring forth. But then he stops and he changes his system. And there's this divine conference that occurs. Creation happens. Let there be, let there be, let there be. Then there's this stop. And there's this council held among the divine nature of God. You read about this in Genesis 1. Let me read it to you. Beginning with verse 26. Then God said, Let us, divine counsel, make man in our image, divine counsel. In our likeness, divine counsel. Up to this point, let there be, let there be, let there be. Hey, let us. Let's conference on this. Let us. Create a pinnacle of creation that will point to our majesty. The triune God. Father, Son, and Spirit there. It goes on. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. Then God blessed him and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. This divine council where God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And so God did. The Trinity held this divine counsel on the creation of man, and man was created. And of all creation, the only part of creation the Bible describes as being made in God's image is humanity. Humanity was created in the image of God. God formed man. God breathed life into man. Man was made to be eternal, to have a relationship with God. God made humanity to be a reflection of his majesty in the image. Humanity was made to reflect the majesty of God. 
Mankind was intended to be earthly representations of the divine majesty of God. But sin fractured that image. Sin fractured that reflection. Sin fractured the image and prevented man from reflecting the majesty of God. And that is the state of sinful humans. A fractured representation of the majesty of God, fractured by sin, and therefore cannot reflect the majesty of God properly. No superglue that we have will fix it. No putting the pieces back in place can make that reflection true again. And so God himself had to don human form and come in the likeness of men. And being found in the likeness of man, humble himself to the, to the point of death, even the death of the cross, whereby he took sin upon himself. And there on the cross took, took the punishment of sin, took the wrath of God, paid for sin. Why? That he might restore the image God intended in us. That fractured image is restored through the ministry of Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, whereby when we come to repentance and faith in him, God restores into us the image that God intended, the image of his majesty back into our lives. This is why the value of Christ's redemptive work is immeasurable in our lives. Without him, we cannot be the image of God's majesty. And only in him can we approach that. God created man and in that creation there is his majesty revealed. God created humanity with purpose, with position to have dominion over the earth. Purpose of filling the earth with God worshipers. He told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Not just for the fun of it, but that the world would be full of God worshipers, image bearers, those who reflected his majesty. His creation of humanity is a reflection of His majesty. Therefore, we see that those who will devalue creation scorn the majesty of God. Those who would devalue the creative process and the creative work of God, the creative plan of God, scorn the majesty of God. For example, those who would attack biblical creation... Scorn the majesty of God. There are those who promote, I feel, erroneous ideologies. They're taught as fact. But it's simply nothing more than an attack on God's majesty by attacking his creative order. For example, if you've studied, if you've studied any life sciences, biology, or zoology, or anything here recently, or if you have kids in school, I guarantee you they've heard this. They've heard about Australopithecus. The most famous version is Lucy. You've probably heard about Lucy if you've been in school, here recently anyway. Touted as the fossil record of the evolutionary process whereby human beings came to be. That's an attack on God's creative order. It scorns his majesty. Now, I've spent a lot of time studying, and I believe so many people 
Good qualified scientists have ignored good qualified scientific process because they've had preconceived notions. They've already known what they wanted to prove and they've looked at the evidence based on what they wanted to prove and interpreted their... But you don't hear the other side of these things, the ones who tout there could be something different. For example, Lord Solly Suckerman. Y'all ever read about him in your science textbooks? Dr. Suckerman? Probably not. Dr. Suckerman was the head of the Department of Anatomy at the medical school at the University of Brigham Young, England. He was tasked with forming a team that studied Lucy and other fossil remains for 15 years to come up with what they felt was a true finding. 15 years Zuckerman studied Authorlopithecus. 15 years he had a team working on it. He was not a Christian creationist. He was a scientist just studying the record. Here was his statement. If we exclude the possibility of creation, then obviously man must have evolved from an ape-like creature. But if he did, there is no evidence for it in the fossil record. Fifteen years he studied one thing, make the link of evolution happen. After 15 years he says, look, I don't believe in creation but there's no evidence for evolution in the fossil record. Scientist after scientist after scientist, I can show you articles, but you never read about them in the textbooks because of a preconceived ideology that wants to attack the majesty of God. It's the world system we're in. The satanic world system wants to attack the majesty of God, and it's institutionalized through education. What about attacks on God's divine Creation as far as creating male and female. That's what Genesis said he did. He created male and female. But as you attack the genders, you attack God's majesty. It's a systematic attack on God's majesty. The LGBTQ platform and ideologies, nothing more than a systematic attack on God's majesty. That's what they are. A satanically driven attack on God's majesty. The order he created in creation. And they're not new. They're not 10, 20, 30 years old. They go back thousands of years. Read your Old Testament. It's a tax on God's created order. Why? We want to attack God's majesty. What about those who would attack the sanctity of life? They do so to scorn God's majesty. Because God said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Here's the system I've set up. Now follow it. So the abortion movement is nothing more than an attack on God's creative order. It's an attack on God's majesty. God's majesty is under attack because God's creation is attacked. Now, before I move on, let me just say this. As you encounter family and friends, co-workers, whoever, who buy into these ideologies, whether it be evolutionary ideologies or maybe the LGBTQ ideologies or maybe they've been indulged in this whole idea of women's rights and the right for this. and blah, blah, blah. Listen, your Bible is not a weapon to harm them, to beat them over the head with. It is the truth of God for you to stand on as you love them and show grace to them. 
You want to have a legitimate conversation with someone who buys in to LGBTQ ideologies? Let them know you love them, you care about them, you extend grace to them, and then start sharing the truth with them. Don't just take the truth and say, here's how it is, whack. The truth hurts, doesn't it? Build a gracious rapport. Think of Jesus in John 4 at that well, talking to a Samaritan woman who's the wrong race, a woman, the wrong gender. According to social mores and norms, he should never talk to her. She's got such a bad reputation, she's involved in all kinds of sin. And does he come right out and just beat her on the head with how ugly she is, how bad she is? No, he builds rapport with her. He interacts with her with mutual respect, and he leads the conversation to the gospel. When you have family and friends who buy into these ideologies, don't just show up tomorrow and say, let me tell you how it is. Invest time building a loving rapport with them so that they can know as you share the truth, you share it out of love. But back to God's majesty, because that's what this psalm is about. So God, his excellence is displayed simply because he's self-existent. His excellence is displayed in his creation. But David continues and says, the Lord's character displays his excellence. His very character, how he interacts, what he does, his, his actions in this world. Those things display the excellence of God, his majesty. God's loving intervention into the affairs of humanity reveal his majesty. In other words, simply the reality that God loves us, is gracious enough and merciful enough to get involved in our lives, that reveals his majesty. The reality that human beings fell into sin, broke the image they're supposed to reflect, rebelled against God, and yet God did not give up on them, yet through his grace and love began to intervene in the affairs of humanity to draw mankind back to himself, to be restored to him. That reveals his majesty. Now David speaks of here, compared to the enormity of all God's creative works, his divine beings, God himself. Who is man that God should be mindful of him? That's what he says right there in verse 4. What is man that you should be mindful of him? In reality, mankind, you and I, we're frail, we're puny, we're finite, we're flawed in nature. We really don't have much to offer God. We're fallen creatures of God's perfect creation. Yet, because of his own character, the majesty of his character, he's reached down to intervene in our lives. God is mindful of us. He has visited humanity physically in the form of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, God seeks to restore the dominion sin stole away from us. Through Jesus, God brings the crowning glory and honor that we know as his children. The excellence of God is displayed in his redeeming love. The reality that he intervenes in our lives is proof of his majesty. The Bible says that God has demonstrated his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than 
Being justified by his blood, we are saved from wrath through him. That's the majesty of God. That as a sinner, Christ died for me, that by his shed blood, he might redeem me and rescue me out of the wrath of God. That's majesty and excellence in God's character. Not because I deserved it. Not because I can earn it. Not because I merit his love or grace. Simply that his character is so majestic, he loves that way. To reach down and rescue us out of sin. The majesty of God is revealed, it's displayed in this gracious gift of Christ, coming and shedding his blood for us. The reality that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might be declared right with God, that's the majesty of God. That's his excellence. You understand that you cannot stand right before God. You cannot be declared righteous before God without the work of Christ taking on your unrighteousness and imparting his righteousness to you. That's the excellence of God. The fact that you have salvation reveals the majesty of God. His own character. The majesty of God is demonstrated by his loving, gracious, merciful ministry toward mankind. God could sit on his throne. He could have kicked it all off and just watched it roll. See how it turns out. But he is actively engaged in our lives on a daily basis, ministering to our needs. Because he's excellent. That's his majesty. His redeeming love that brings restoration to sinful people. That's his majesty. His gracious provision in the lives of his children, that's his excellence. His merciful protection of those in his kingdom declares his majesty. All the attributes we see God display as he interacts in our lives daily, they point to his majesty. God is excellent simply because he is. God's creation is displays his excellence. God's character as he intervenes into our lives and seeks to rescue us from sin and provide for us declares his majesty. There's one last thing David points to that declares majesty. He says the Lord's Christ denotes excellence. See, the people in David's day probably didn't recognize this. I don't know if he recognized it or not, but he was speaking forward. He was prophesying about the majesty that occurs in and through Christ. The reality, my friends, is majesty begins and ends with the Lord Jesus Christ. When you want to talk about the excellence of God, the majesty of God, it begins with Jesus, it ends with Jesus. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16, the Bible says that Jesus was the majesty of creative power. Creation happened through Jesus. He is that majestic power. If you keep reading, go one verse further in Colossians 1 and you find out that Jesus holds the majestic power to keep it all together. Jesus created through his majestic power. Jesus holds it all together with his majestic power. And the Bible tells us through prophecy, for example, in Isaiah 9, 
that Jesus will sit on the throne of all creation forever and there will be no end to his dominion. His majesty endures forever. So you start with Colossians 1 and you see that the majestic creative power was in Christ. The eternal throne is Christ. Majesty begins and ends with Jesus. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have majesty. To deny Jesus is to deny the majesty of God. We like to, we like to uh, be modern in our thinking and accommodating in our thinking and say, well, now there are many people who believe in God and, and they believe in God's excellence and they're approaching God how they believe they can approach God and worship him and so forth. No, listen, my friends, to deny Jesus is to deny God's majesty because majesty begins with Jesus, it ends with Jesus. And if you don't have Jesus, you don't have majesty. So when you deny Christ, you deny the majesty of God. There's only one way, Jesus. You want to know the majesty of God? You want to understand the majesty of God? You want to experience the majesty of God? Jesus, only Jesus. David was looking ahead, whether he knew it or not, because this psalm speaks of Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 2, the Bible in the New Testament, quotes the Bible from the Old Testament. Hebrews 2 quotes Psalm 8 in reference to Jesus. Hebrews 2, beginning with verse 6. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you would take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with the glory and honor. You have set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. The writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 8 to speak about Jesus. And he tells us that Jesus lowered himself to the estate of humanity to reveal God to all humanity. That he is the image of the invisible God who has revealed God, who has made a way for us to know God. By his coming, Christ made humanity aware of God and how to know God in his majesty. And through his suffering, he has brought redemption so that we could know God's majesty. Jesus has been crowned with glory and honor. We know that to be true because the Bible tells us he has returned to his heavenly position, sitting in the place of honor and of glory at the right hand of the Father in heaven. There's no greater majesty than the majesty revealed in Christ. All are in subjection to him. There's nothing that's not under him. And he uses his majesty to point to the majesty of the Father. There in verse 9 of Hebrews 2, the text very plainly states it was by God's grace that Jesus tasted death for everyone. The majestic grace of God sent the Son to taste death for us that we might not die spiritually but live forever with God in His heaven. See, man was created by God for the glory of God. But sin tainted this purpose. So the restoring Redeemer, Jesus, 
has captured what was lost to sin, and now he's enthroned in heaven waiting his return. And each of us can know the majesty of God if we'll come to Jesus. You want to understand majesty. You want to know excellence. You want to actually understand and and take part of. You want to experience in your daily life the majesty of God. Come to Jesus. Bow before Jesus. Admit your sin. Confess him as your savior. Place your trust in him then you'll know the majesty of God. This morning, I don't know where you're at in regard to God's majesty. I don't know if you willingly accept it or if you willingly reject it. I don't know if you've come to faith in Jesus to experience God's excellence in your life or if that's foreign to you. I don't know if you've come to Jesus, but along the way, you've allowed worldly ideologies to chip away at God's majesty And maybe you need that refreshed. I really don't know where you're at, but here's what I do know. God will meet you where you're at so that you can know his majesty in your life. You can experience his excellence in your life. That's what I want for you. I want you to be able to walk away today and say, I know the excellence of God in my life. It starts with Jesus and it ends with Jesus. Where are you with Jesus? I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. Right there where you're at, would you be honest with yourself? No one else looking at you, no one else to interfere with you. This is just you and yourself in a conversation. So be honest with yourself. And would you ask yourself, have I come to Jesus as my restoring redeemer that I might be the image of God that he created me to be and know his excellence. If you've never come to Jesus with a heart of faith calling out to him, I'd ask you to do that right now. It is as simple as as you, from the sincerity of your heart, with all seriousness, in your own words, you just speak to him and and you would say something like this, Lord Jesus, I know I've tried a lot of different ideologies and theories and practices. I I know I've tried this, that, and the other, but I, I recognize right now that you are the only majestic one and you're my only hope. So I admit, Lord, that I'm a sinner falling away from you But I believe you died on the cross to pay for my sin. I believe you rose again. Lord, I believe you can forgive me. You can restore me. You can bring majesty into my life. So Jesus, I'm asking, would you come into my life as my Savior? I give you my life to live for you.